Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax updates to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PBC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Conference in San Diego, California, where I'm excited to have David Ernick on the podcast. David is a principal in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Transfer Pricing Practice. Before joining PwC in 2013, David was Associate International Tax Counsel at the U.S. Treasury Department. David. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you today, Doug. I'm very excited about our topic. Back to Pillar 2, which is my sweet spot here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks. But before we go there, a very important question and something to share with you. I saw that you have an undergraduate degree from Boston University and a law degree from Boston College. So my best friend growing up in St. Louis went to BU, and I visited him during spring break of my freshman year. I went to the University of Missouri and I stayed at a dormitory called Warren Towers. Did you happen to stay there? And do you have any stories from Warren Towers that are appropriate to share with the audience? And it really is a dorm like no other. 1,800 freshmen, it was crazy. But what was your experience like? Yes, actually that's a great question, Doug. That was my first dormitory freshman year at Boston University. And I didn't know much about it going into it, but I think someone had described it as a three-pronged monstrosity, which, which I think may be a little bit unfair. But yeah, that, that was my first introduction to dorm living. And I do think that's had uh, has had an influence on my behavior for the rest of my life because I very much wanted to make sure I never ended up in any sort of prison-like environment, <laughs> sort of like that. And so, so that did have an influence. Um, but I am very much hoping that that's been updated and refurbished, and the kids going to school today have, have much much more luxur- luxurious accommodations. Me too, and I have no idea. That was 30 years ago, <laughs> um, but I, I think that's a perfect description. I mean, it was just like cinder block. It was a tiny room. I remember I, I had to sleep on the floor in the middle between between the two rooms, but because yeah. obviously but on the flip side, it, it made it easier to study because there were very few distractions. All right. Yeah. All right. So let's get into country by country reporting, and we're going to spend most of the podcast talking about the Pillar 2 transitional safe harbor rules. Um, But for listeners not as familiar with country by country reporting, what is it and how did all of this start? Sure. Yeah, and maybe a little history here is useful, Doug. So transfer pricing, country by country reporting, we, we got this in 2016, the first year. It was part of the original BEPS project, a transfer pricing risk assessment tool. And where did this come from? How did we get here? So originally, country-by-country reporting had nothing to do with transfer pricing. It came around at the beginning of the millennium. It was one of these tools where the idea was you had some of the extractive companies report where they earn their revenues, where they earn their profits. And it was sort of an anti-abuse tool because if you had that information, then you could trace where those payments went to developing countries and see, well, if they're getting a lot of money from selling natural resources and whatnot, 
where are those funds going to? Are they being used to build things like schools, roads, and bridges? Are they being siphoned off appropriately? So it had a completely non-tax, non-transfer-pricing purpose, but it's become kind of a Swiss Army knife type of tool. In 2016, we got it for transfer-pricing purposes, with the idea being that if you've got a report on a jurisdictional basis, certain things that attract profits, like your number of employees, your tangible assets, your revenues, things like that, that could be used as a transfer pricing risk assessment tool. So that's how it's come in. And since 2016, Doug, I've been spending a lot of time on country by country reporting issues, just from a compliance perspective. But now there's even more emphasis on using country by country reports because we've got the transitional CBCR safe harbor yep. under pillar two that we'll talk about today. And we're also looming in the background, we've got the public country by country reporting. So country by country reporting has been evolving. Where we're at right now, pre-pillar two safe harbor, um, we're doing the compliance, we're putting together the country by country report, taxpayers are filing them. It doesn't seem to be being used as intended by the OECD as a transfer pricing risk assessment tool. I'm not seeing a lot or even any tax authorities saying, well, we're starting a transfer pricing audit because we did a review of your country by country report and that triggered something from a transfer pricing risk perspective. Maybe that's happening, Doug, but I haven't really been seen, seeing that in practice so far. So where we are currently, CBC reports are a compliance burden. You do the best you can in terms of ensuring the accuracy of the data points you're, you're reporting on your CBC report. But there is a cost-benefit analysis, so I have seen several taxpayers who a few years later say, oh, you know what, we reviewed the CBC report we filed a few years ago, and we found out we may have made some mathematical errors or definitional issues in our CBC report. Do we need to amend the return or anything like that? But so far, where we are now, those numbers have not been audited, and there's not, there's not a direct connection between the numbers you report on your CBC report and a tax liability on your, on your tax return. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point, right? Historically, and now Pillar 2 is going to change the game for country by country, but the country by country report just did not impact tax liabilities, right? Yes. It's what Correct. numbers you put on your tax return and paid in the local jurisdiction. And so, you know, arguably there was less incentive, you know, for taxpayers to the extent that they found there was an error or whatever to go back and correct. And Pillar 2 is certainly going to change that. And then to your point on public country by country, which we'll get to here at the end of the mm -hmm. podcast, obviously brings increased scrutiny, eyeballs, and so a number of reasons to for taxpayers to focus more on their country by country report. Exactly. So let's, I want to move to Pillar 2 here. And the, before we get into the actual safe harbors, why did the OECD provide taxpayers with a safe harbor? What is the general policy reasons for, for this? Because I think many of us that had been following Pillar 2 before these initial rules came out, we were, at least I will speak for myself, I was a little surprised to see country by country being the kind of baseline for the safe harbors. But what is the general intention of the safe harbors? Well, sure. Yeah, so the Pillar 2, the substantive calculations for the top-up tax on a jurisdictional basis. They're very complicated. They require a lot of precision, a lot of adjustments. I was very happy. The CBCR safe harbor, as you said, was a little bit unexpected. But I think this is the OECD really going out of their way to say, 
Well, we understand it. Pillar 2 is brand new. There's a lot of compliance burden. As you said, we're helping a lot of taxpayers get ready for Pillar 2 implementation in terms of changing their systems, being able to gather all the relevant data and file the relevant tax returns. Let's maybe kind of ease into this slowly if we can provide a safe harbor where hopefully we don't have to go through that same burden and we may get a different better answer in terms of top-up tax liability than if we went through the full substantive Pillar 2 calculation. That would be helpful for taxpayers, so, so let's make the transition to the full-on Pillar 2 world a little bit easier. And taxpayers are already preparing these country-by-country country reports. They seem to be suitable for this purpose. Let's, let's adapt them here and give taxpayers a little bit of a, a simplification. And I think that certainly makes sense in concept. And I think as we start to unpack some of this, I think the, there are some significant complexities associated with yes. the country-by-country country report. We've dedicated a lot of time on the podcast talking about the complexities with the full globe rules and the ability for taxpayers to be able to access all the information and that only you know, 40 to 60% of the information at best is within an ERP system. Um, but I think there are some significant challenges that we've seen with country-by-country country reporting. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the, how the rules work. So these, the safe harbors apply for purpose of the income inclusion rule, the undertax profit rule, as well as QDMTTs. And I think that was a welcome addition in some of the recent administrative guidance that these, these safe harbors will also apply for purposes of qualified domestic minimum top-up tax. It's important for listeners to know the UTPR doesn't come into effect, uh, effect until 2025. So really starting next year for calendar year taxpayers and fiscal year taxpayers in 2024, these safe harbors will be very relevant for those in-scope jurisdictions for both QDMTTs as well as any IR and obviously for the non-U.S. parented groups for, for those U- UPEs um, in a jurisdiction that's implementing the rules. Mm-hmm. So how long do these safe harbor rules apply? Because they are temporary and then any idea what happens after this this temporary uh, period uh, terminates sure so exactly doug it is labeled a transitional cbcr safe harbor you're el- eligible to use it for the first three years and then it expires you do have that once out always out rule to be aware of also so if i don't qualify for a safe harbor in a jurisdiction in the first year can't use it in any of the subsequent years three years we've got it now Unclear how things will play out, but I think there have been taxpayers saying, well, this is a good idea. Can we extend this in some form? Could we make this be a permanent safe harbor, either in its current form or in some some evolved way where maybe it's a little more difficult than it is now, but still simpler than the full-on Pillar 2 calculation? Yeah, I think the the question that has been raised in a number of different forums is, will we be able to, will taxpayers continue to be able to rely on country by country after the transitional safe harbor? Is there some other kind of similar type of safe harbors, but maybe based on the financial accounting system of the ultimate parent entity instead of actually looking at the C by C? reports, but I think a lot of us are anxiously awaiting, and presumably the OECD has a lot of other more urgent issues that needs to be solved before the transitional safe harbor, but it'll be interesting to see how they respond to that. Yes, exactly, and a safe harbor is always a good idea, Doug, right? If you can if you can have a simplified process for getting to almost the same answer than you would if you applied the full substantive rule, but then anytime you've got that sort of lurking in the background, you've got taxpayers thinking about, well, safe harbor might be a great idea in theory, but can this be misapplied or used in ways that we didn't attend? That sort of tension is always going to be out there, and I think the OECD will definitely consider that in terms of 
do we um, extend this safe harbor in some form after three years? All right, so let's get into the safe harbors, David. What are what are the three safe harbors for purposes of Pillar Two? Sure. Yeah, you've got a um, you've got a de minimis exception. The first one, if your revenues and profits are below a certain level per jurisdiction, you qualify under that prong. Yeah, that's ten million of revenue and one million of profit before tax in the country by country report. Yes, exactly. And then you move to the effective tax rate test using your, your data from your CBC report if you're below 15% for the first year, and then I believe it goes up to 16% the second year, 17% the third year. That's right. And then the third one we've got is based on the substance-based income exclusion rule, which is sort of a, a you know, a routine profits proxy, looking yeah. at a percentage of your, your payroll and your tangible assets in a jurisdiction. Yeah, so you look at the, the pillar two, the substance-based income exclusion. So you have to look at the, the pillar two rules to determine what is that. It's called the SBIE, obviously. Yes. And if that is greater than your profits before tax, then you can meet the routine profits test. And you know, practically speaking, I think operating companies that are operating in losses are, are one that, that typically come to mind where you can meet the routine profits test or where maybe you have a smaller amount of return for whatever reason and, and a lot of people and assets. Assets. So there, there are also, I think it's important to note for, for listeners that are, there are some groups that are excluded, um, stateless constituent entities, which I think generally would have a, a low tax rate. Those are specifically excluded from the rules. Um, one of the other practical exclusions, David, that I've seen um, for some taxpayers that can be challenging is multi-parented, multinational groups where a single country-by-country country report does not include the combined groups, mm -hmm. um, and that we can see that sometimes in the private equity or asset management space, for example, where we may have separate country-by-country country reports. The country-by-country country report really needs to be done by the ultimate parent entity and needs to include the jurisdictional combination for the CEs in order for it to be qualifying, which, which makes sense, but mm -hmm. I think can be a trap, particularly for some outside the public space that have those country-by-country country reports. And then there's also an exclusion related to um, countries that have an eligible distribution tax system, which I think is, is, has a relatively minimal impact. So let's move to, you know, because the, there are some significant differences between the full globe rules and the transitional safe harbor rules. And there's a whole bunch of these. We're not going to cover them all. Um, but are there any specific ones that, you know, you've seen in practice or things that are maybe more practical for taxpayers as they think about some of the differences and the time savers that may be associated with using the safe harbor rules as opposed to the full globe rules? Yes. So, yeah, the, the safe harbor document that we've got from the OECD so far, it's relatively brief, and some of the questions we've been getting, Doug, one in particular is, well, what about things like um, if I make certain topside adjustments or I've got adjustments I need to make to push down stock-based compensation yep. to certain jurisdictions? Do I need to, so I, I need to do that in my full-on Pillar 2 calculation. Do I need to do that for use of the CBCR safe harbor also? And that's one that I think really needs to be thought through carefully. And so far, I've been looking at that and I say, well, in the country by country, what I'll refer to as traditional country by country reporting, there's no requirement to do that because the whole framework of country by country reporting is that you pick your data source that you'll use to populate the numbers in table one. That might be US GAAP. And then you take your data as you find it there. No adjustments are required or appropriate. 
except to the extent you've got some limited adjustments in, for example, the IRS regulations on that. But generally, the OECD wanted to make it as simple as possible. So pick your data source, take your data as you find it. So I don't have to make those sort of adjustments for purposes of traditional country-by-country -country reporting. When I look at the safe harbor document from the OECD, there's no requirement that I make those sort of adjustments in using the safe harbor. They don't say anything about that. So I could stop there if I'm just a literalist. I just rely on the literal text of the safe harbor document. But then people have been asking, well, what about, do I need to think about, is there any sort of anti-abuse sort of um, way I'd need to look at this? Or do I need to think about what would be the intent? Or am I doing something inappropriate if I don't make those sort of adjustments mm -hmm. for the safe harbor? And I think the answer to that, Doug, has to be no. And the OECD, I, I think, teed that up a little bit. They do have a paragraph in that document saying, well, well look, this is a safe harbor. We realize that you might get a different, substantively better result under the safe harbor. And that the whole point of this is that it's supposed to be a simplified process. Right. And you're not supposed to have that same level of precision per jurisdiction and per constituent entity as if you did the full-on um, pillar two calculation. So that's a big one that I've been seeing so far, Doug. Yeah, and the OECD has um, has come out and said that they um, are concerned that certain taxpayers may be engaging in certain type of financing arrangements that could change or potentially implicate where income is reported in the, the country by country report and that it is their intention to form some, some type of anti-abuse rule. Now we don't, you know, we're recording this in early November of 2023. We haven't seen or heard exactly what that guidance means. Means. But I think, you know, to the extent that that the OECD does put in or consider an anti-abuse rule, that is going to make things more challenging for, for taxpayers because instead of just, frankly, pulling the country-by-country country report, they're going to need to look through all of the intercompany financing arrangements that they have throughout the globe to figure out, and even if one of these wasn't intended to potentially change the results of the country-by-country country report, you know, if it meets that particular definition, there's a risk that the taxpayers are going to actually need to go through and look at all the financing arrangements and figure out do any adjustments, which, to, to your point, kind of undermines the whole point of the safe harbor, which was just to be able to, to take this information from the country-by-country country reports. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Doug. And, and you mentioned that, um, so the OECD is working on some additional guidance on having a qualified CBC report for safe harbor purposes, which we haven't seen as of the date of recording. I'm hopeful that's a useful document in terms of giving pretty explicit guidance about what you do and do not need to consider to have a qualified CBC report. If it does take on that sort of anti-abuse flavor, um, I, I do think that sort of, as, as you said, potentially defeats the whole point of the safe harbor. And when you look at, at least from the transfer pricing perspective, when you think about the existing safe harbors that we've got, they're not really backed by an anti-abuse provision. It's very, if you meet the literal terms of the safe harbor, you're eligible to use it. And yes, we realize you might get a substantively better answer under the safe harbor, but that's the whole point. And this is transitional three exactly. years. So the, 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 the concern might be relatively evanescent. Well said. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll just highlight a few others and, and we'll, I'll include something in the show notes where you know, we've put together a document that kind of lists the material differences between the transitional safe harbor and the globe rules. But a few that, that I've seen kind of in practice, um, the equity method income and loss is included in the transitional safe harbor. So that's 
something that's typically going to be in a country-by-country report. That doesn't need to be backed out. Realized and unrealized gains from share transactions are included in the, transa- the transitional safe harbor, so that doesn't need to be backed out. Um, no adjustments for foreign currency gains and losses. That can be a really big one. Uh, one of the other one typical challenge I've seen related to cover taxes is dividend withholding taxes are included at the recipient for the transitional safe harbor, which is typically where they would show up in the financial statements because that's who's legally liable for those withholding taxes. But the full pillar two globe rules force you to unpack that and then push that down into the payer so you don't have to do that for uh, country by country reporting. The, another important one is the potential recast of deferred expenses to 15%. That doesn't need to be done for the transitional safe harbor. The other two I might highlight is that the long-term deferred tax liabilities are included in the transitional safe harbor. So this analysis that many taxpayers have kind of complained about that this five-year rule where you have to look to see if your, if your deferred tax liabilities are going to flip within five years you thankfully do not need to do that for the transitional safe harbor. And then finally, there are no adjustments for CFC taxes, <clears throat> excuse me, which can be a, a challenge, particularly for US taxpayers, um, but really for any country that is implementing these rules that has a CFC regime. So again, that's not an inclusive list, but I mean, really kind of material differences between what's required for GLOBE and what's required for the transitional safe harbors. Yes, and, and I'm glad you ran through all those points, Doug, because again, getting back Back to your point, the country-by-country transitional safe harbor, when you first look at it initially and you run through, it's not that long of a document. And you say, well, I've got my CBC report already prepared. This looks plug and play. I can use the safe harbor pretty easily. All those points you mentioned, though, are very, very complicated. It's not as simple as it appears at first blush. Exactly. We're going to continue (laughs) to go down that path. So Let's talk about now because the, about what a qualifying country-by-country country report is. And so the, the, the model rules commentary state that to be able to meet the country-by-country the country safe harbor, the transitional safe harbor, you have to have a qualifying country-by-country country report. What is a qualifying country-by-country country report, David? Yeah, th- that's a great question. I've been, I started getting that a lot from taxpayers, Doug, back in July because safe harbor are very important in terms of potentially getting me a better result in terms of top-up tax liability, simplified compliance burden. When I look through that safe harbor document from the OECD, and again, if I'm a literal, literalist, what does it say? A qualified CBC report means it has to be prepared using certain acceptable data sources. And for regular CBC reporting, I can use almost any reliable data source. If I want to have a qualified CBC report, I've got to use either US GAAP numbers, IFRS, or my local stat accounts for purposes of preparing my CBC report. And that's all it says. So if I'm a literalist, I stop there. I use the right data source. I've got a qualified CBC report. But when you think through how this will be implemented and applied in practice, I think very quickly we had a concern about, well, now, unlike in traditional CBC reporting, there is a number on your tax return, your tax liability, that does depend directly on the CBC report. If I'm a tax authority, if I'm an exam agent looking at this a few years later, I think it is, there is significant likelihood that they will audit the numbers on your CBC report. They'll review that. They'll start by saying, well, I see the number on your CBC report that you plugged into the safe harbor. Prove it to me. Right. Prove to me that that number is right. Take that number that you've got there, 
go all the way backwards through your process to the original source data and prove to me that it's correct. And if there is a mistake, and as I said, we, we've seen um, you know, a, a good, good amount of mistakes in CBC reports to date, I think the, I don't want to be too skeptical, but I think the concern would be a tax authority's um, view of that might be, well, your CBC report isn't even accurate. How can it be a qualified CBC report for purposes of the Pillar 2 safe harbor? And I'm not even going to give you a chance to amend that and correct that error. So again, I don't want to be too skeptical, but I think there is a, a reasonable likelihood that that could happen. And then the question from taxpayers would be, well, we want to make sure that doesn't happen. What can we do ahead of time? How can we make sure our numbers are accurate? And there's no set process or checklist for doing that, Doug. But I think what we've been doing so far is say, well, let's review your existing process. How are you pulling the data to populate your CBC report? What is that process? Let's review that. Let's also, we do have some guidance from the OECD, additional guidance on country-by-country country reporting, which was last updated in 22. That's a 50-page document going through a lot of the issues that were not addressed in 2016 when we first got country-by-country country reporting. Let's review that document, make sure everything you're doing is in accordance with those recommendations. And then finally, this will be something that, um, this is coming very soon as um, part of next year, 2024, when you're putting together your financial statements as part of your provision review, this is something that your, your internal audit team, your, your auditors, financial statement auditors will want to review. They'll do that sort of audit ahead of time. But I think ultimately the test, Doug, will be, well, if I'm a public company, can I reconcile any differences from my CBC report that I've got to the numbers in my 10K? If I can, that's a pretty good indication that my, my CBC report is accurate and should be qualified. Yeah, and maybe just a, a couple of points. You, you talk about potential tax authorities looking at that. For those companies that are public companies, obviously before you know, tax authorities look at that in a few years, their financial statement auditors are presumably going to ask similar questions and that you have a qualifying country-by-country country report. What process did you go through? So maybe a little bit more immediacy for those public companies that are out there thinking about what process and what do they need to do to make sure that they have a qualifying country-by-country country report. Yes. The other point that that you had mentioned that resonated to me was, well, what if you fail or have a bad jurisdiction for, for whatever reason? You've grabbed bad data, whatever. You've included multiple countries and you were supposed to have two separate companies. If there was a PE that kind of accidentally got stuck into a, a bad country, I think one of the unanswered questions is, well, does that cause your entire country-by-country country report to fail? Or does that just effectively pollute the one jurisdiction that you're relying on the transitional safe harbor? And we don't really have concrete guidance. And if anybody from the OECD is listening, <laughs> I think it would be helpful to clarify that if one country fails the particular, for, for doesn't have a qualifying country by country report, it doesn't necessarily pollute the entire you know, transitional safe harbor, but presumably just that one jurisdiction. But there, there, I think there is some uncertainty there. Yeah, I, I hope we do get guidance on that, Doug, because to your point, if there is a mistake on the CBC report, I would think it should only disqualify that one jurisdiction. And you should only look at the relevant data points. So are there errors in things like the revenue and profits that are being used for this transitional safe harbor? But what if I make a, a mistake with respect to the value of my tangible assets or intangible or my number of employees? 
that should not um, disqualify your CBC report for safe harbor. I, I, I do hope we get we get guidance on that from the OECD. Yeah, agreed. That would seem appropriate. All right, so we've already mentioned a few of the challenges with a, the qualifying country by country report, but I know one of the big ones and near and dear to the transfer pricing practice relates to transfer pricing adjustments and kind of how true ups occur as part of a taxpayer's annual transfer pricing process. So. Talk a little bit about that. What are some of the challenges associated with TP adjustments and how we have a qualifying country-by-country country report? Sure, yeah, and this is something that's not uncommon, Doug. So when I do my transfer pricing for the year, I set my policy, I look for my arm's length range, and as I'm going through the year, I try to make sure my numbers that I'm, that I'm getting in my um, consolidated statements are within the IQR. But there's sort of a lag, and that doesn't always happen, and maybe I've got to make a post-year-end adjustment for tax purposes to come within the IQR. What is the impact of that on the CBCR safe harbor? And potentially, you know, you could think, well, maybe that disqualifies the whole thing. I don't think that would be the appropriate answer. One answer could be, well, I've got to go back and I've got to make an amendment for that relevant year and push that adjustment to where it should have been to the relevant year, or there could the other answer could be, well, let's just keep that adjustment in the current year, and that will be acceptable. So either one of those would seem to be possible, but as you said, it's something we, we don't have guidance on that at the, at the moment. Right, and, and we know that at least under the general, the full Pillar 2 GLOBE rules, that there is no mechanism for refunds, and there appears to be kind of this attitude that we only look forward, we don't look back. You know, you can't go back and get refunds or effectively do amendments for, for your prior and so that would kind of lean to me to say, well, maybe that should be a prospective adjustment, but I think guidance would be really helpful in that area. Agree. Yeah, and, and that, that raises another point, Doug. So um, this, again, this is something that I, I don't think is obvious to the transfer pricing implications when you think about it. What if I've got a transfer pricing audit years later and a tax authority makes a transfer pricing adjustment? Right. So from a transfer pricing perspective, I can deal with that. Hopefully if it's a treaty, treaty partner country, I can go to competent authority. I can resolve the double taxation from a transfer pricing perspective. But as you said, for min tax purposes, there's no mechanism to go back right. and change the amount of min tax you paid. That seems to me to mean, well, now anytime I've got a transfer pricing adjustment years later that's sustained in whole or in part, I've got built-in double taxation with respect to the min tax, which uh, that, was, that was a surprise to me, a really um, sort of unexpected, unpleasant surprise in how the min tax rules work. Yeah, agreed. Um, so just another reason to focus on transfer pricing and try to avoid, um, which I think most taxpayers do, to try to avoid those future adjustments. Yeah, and that, that is something, you know, when you think about, well, what, what, if anything, can I do to avoid that? APAs, especially bilateral APAs, are always the gold standard for yep. transfer pricing. Great point. This puts even more pressure, even more importance on getting APAs to the extent possible. Yeah, it's a great point. It'll be interesting to see if there is a flood now of, of interest and applications for APAs uh, across the world. Mm -hmm. So I know one of the other challenges for taxpayers is the timing that, that generally taxpayers do for the preparation of their country-by-country -country reports. And as we had mentioned, it never involved an actual or resulted in any tax liabilities. It was more a compliance obligation. 
Um, so what do taxpayers need to do to potentially accelerate their internal C-by-C process to actually get to make sure that they can rely on the safe harbors, particularly as we think about financial statement accounting and, you know, are there systems challenges? I mean, what do, what do companies need to do to, to, to move that process forward and why? Sure. Yeah, well, I, I think this puts a renewed emphasis on your CBC reporting process. And as I said, um, people have been doing the best they can to put these together. I think the message that I've been telling people is no matter where you're at on that spectrum, whether you've um, devoted more or less resources, more or less time to focusing on your process for pulling all that data together and filing an ac accurate CBC report, now is the time to review that process because there, there's much more pressure in terms of substantive tax liability, making sure I qualify for the CBCR safe harbor. So review that process. And then of course, there's the, like everything with respect to pillar two, there's the modeling. So let's take the last CBC report that I filed and let's walk through, do the, um, the three-part safe harbor analysis, see if I qualify for that safe harbor in all the countries where I've got a constituent entity, and then if not, what if anything changes going forward? Yeah, and I think that it's a practical response and where many taxpayers are, are starting. Um, I will make the comment that, you know, I've spoken to a number of taxpayers about this and some who maybe haven't been as diligent as maybe others in the, in the country by country reporting because of systems issues or a whole number of different reasons. Um, I've had, I have heard a number of taxpayers say that I'll have to start rethinking their entire country by country process and sort of the systems and trying to accelerate the timing of that, that is this really any easier or any more simplified than just putting in the process and actually doing the globe calculations. In other words, this is a temporary safe harbor. If we have to make massive process and system changes, why don't we just do the full calculation as opposed to even dealing with this three-year transitional safe harbor where taxpayers are having to deal with two sets of systems and processes? Yeah, th that's a good point. The, the other point would be on the, on the flip side, Doug, if you haven't been able to make those sort of changes to your processes to make your CBC preparation report easier, this is... Um, a good sort of opportunity to do that because if I'm going to be ha have to make all these changes to comply with the pillar two rules, I can easily throw these in along with these and you know, th there's potentially more budget for making these changes now, more opportunity. All right, and that, that is a perfect segue because I want to move from pillar two to public country by country reporting. And uh -huh. kinda, you alluded to the point of why companies need to be focused on country by country reporting and obviously for the safe harbor. Um, but tell us a little bit about public country by country reporting. What does that mean? And then I want to unpack sort of some of the jurisdictions that have proposed. But what is country by country, what is public country by country reporting? Sure, yeah, and, and again, maybe it's a little useful to go back to the history, Doug, and Please. see how we got here. So you remember um, country by country reporting we got as part of the BEPS project starting in 2016. It was under the auspices of the OECD. And at that point, there was a little reluctance to do this from a policy perspective. I had always been um, personally advocating for not doing country by country reporting because I thought, well, this looks to me like a stocking horse for formulary apportionment. This seems to be the first step from going to the arms link standard to formulary apportionment. But regardless of where you are on that debate, the OECD's premise at that time was, well, well, look, even if you don't agree with country by country reporting from a policy perspective, be glad that we, the OECD, did this because you've now got several benefits one would be, well, you've only got to file one version of the CBC report. This will all be standardized and uniform. 
And also, this is a confidential filing requirement. You file it with your home tax authority. It's exchanged confidentially with other treaty partners where you've got a constituent entity. So you've got privacy there. <clears throat> but so that was the way this was premised or promised from the OECD. But again, things always evolve, Doug. And yes, the, they do. The, <laughs> the concern that I had at the time, and I, I even wrote an article about that, would be, well, well things do evolve. Is this the first step towards going to public, mandatory public country-by-country country reporting? That seemed to me to be a big risk, despite the assurances from the OECD. And I also thought, well, we've got un uniformity so far, but what's to prevent this from going out of control? And it, it would only take one other country to say, well, we want additional data points that you've got to file. So potentially not working out the way it was intended or promised in 2016. And now we are in that world. So public country by country reporting, like the name says, instead of just filing your CBC report confidentially with your tax return, um, several countries, including most prominently the EU countries under the EU directive, has said, well, you should be required to make your country by country report publicly available. It's essentially the same data points as you file on your Form 8975 with the IRS. The country by country breakdown is a little bit different under the EU proposal. You report on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis within the EU. Same thing for any of the EU black or gray list countries. Mm -hmm. And then everything else gets aggregated together into this other category. Um, but so that's substantively what it is. And then you've got to make that um, publicly available, as it said, either on your website or an EU registry of public country-by-country country reports, with the idea being that now the whole world can see your report and see if your profits are really aligned with your value drivers. And, and this, uh, again, Doug, to the point about the, the rules evolve, this goes right along with the transparency initiatives and things about right. you know, ESG reporting, transparency, sustainability. This is transparency with respect to tax issues. So the EU, I think the EU proposal would, that those, the, the country by country report would be disclosed in 2026, I believe. Um, the, the the, the, yeah, so the EU directive, as I understand, the, the EU sets out the directive. They set a deadline by which it has to be incorporated into member country rules at the latest. There's nothing to prevent countries from sort of jumping the gun and implementing right. earlier. And the one concern that we have is that in Romania, for example, they've implemented the EU directive domestically with an earlier start date. So as it stands right now, it's already in effect for taxable periods starting on or after January 21st, 2023, meaning the first public reporting, if you've got a Romanian constituent entity, would be by December 31st, 2024. So coming up very quickly. And I think Australia has proposed some rules. What about the U.S.? The U.S., we've had proposals from, um, I believe, one, one House of Congress, and that did get a lot of support, but that has not been enacted. But we've seen proposals for SEC rules to, to do this. So this is a sort of thing when you think about, well, this is only an EU or other country initiative. There is some support for this within the U.S. also, but as of now, we... We, we don't have this as, a, as they do in the EU. Yeah, and, and I think what's important for listeners to understand is that 
well, even if, if you're a U.S. parented group, I mean, this is kind of similar to the architecture of Pillar 2. Um, even if the U.S. doesn't adopt the rules, if you operate in a jurisdiction that adopts the rules and that country by country report is publicly disclosed, then taxpayers, you know, or the tax authorities throughout the globe are going to be able to see that public country by country. So you really yes. just need to operate in one country that adopts yes. the rules and then the, the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Exactly. Yep. Okay, so um, maybe kind of to, to, to in summarize, in light of the increased importance of the country-by-country country reports for both Pillar 2 and the fact that they're becoming public, what immediate steps here in closing, David, do you uh, suggest for, for, for listeners to, to think about? Sure, yeah. So both of these initiatives, Doug, the, the Pillar 2 Safe Harbor and Public Country-by-Country country Reporting, they changed that dynamic of where we are now from just being a co- compliance burden where you do the best you can it's all confidential. There's no number on your tax return. There's no tax liability that directly depends upon this. This is all changing. Um, in the next several years, public country-by-country country reporting will be in effect if you're in the EU or Australia or one of the other relevant countries. And both of these have the same impact. I've got to put more focus on the reliability of my data, make sure it's accurate, make sure it's reliable. It's going to be used for different purposes. And I've got to do that sooner rather than later. I've got to talk to other people within my company, especially with respect to public country country reporting, let them know this is coming. What will be the reaction when this becomes public? How do we respond to this? And how will it be used in practice? But I, I think the... The one thing, Doug, that I've always said is transfer pricing documentation requirements never contract. They only expand. (laughs) I'm concerned there might be additional CBCR data points added, things like that. But country by country reporting becomes more important, and it remains to be seen if there are other uses that that people will try to put that data to. I am betting that that they will, (laughs) but time will tell. David, thank you very much. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, David Ernick, Transfer Pricing Partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.